Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan and I'm here with my co-host Gabia. Hello. This week we will be discussing Philip Pullman's new novel, La Belle Sauvage, the first in his new trilogy, The Book of Dust, which is a companion trilogy to his classic novels, His Dark Materials. This novel takes place 10 years before the beginning of The Golden Compass and features Lyra as a baby and focuses mainly on a young boy, Malcolm, who lives across the river from her and is trying to protect her from various forces of evil. So I think we were both extremely excited about this novel when it was announced in the spring. Uh, His Dark Materials are probably my favorite books from my childhood, uh, and I reread them over the summer in anticipation of this novel. And it was even better, I think, than I anticipated. It was such a wonderful reading. It was so satisfying. I'm actually going to reread mine after having finished this. So we'll both have kind of the bookended experience. Yeah. I managed to stretch out reading this over the course of a full week, which for me is really sort of an impressive achievement. Uh, It's a pretty thick book, but it's a young adult book, so there aren't as many pages per word as in some other, you know, published volumes. And but I just wanted to savor the experience so much that I only let myself read like a couple chapters a day. Uh, And it was just such a beautiful, beautiful experience of reading the prose is so good. The whole thing is incredible. And it I can't think of another reading experience I've had as an adult like this, because those books were so essential to my childhood. And this literally was returning to that world with a new book that was as good as the old books, which is yeah, an incredible without rarity. Without being like a really self-indulgent nostalgia trip, yeah. right? Because I feel like I kind of have the opposite reaction to the new Harry Potter stuff, right? I think some fans really enjoy Fantastic Beasts and the other new Harry Potter material because it gives them that kind of nostalgic buzz. Whereas to me, I'm just like, qualitatively, this is terrible. And also as an adult, it's like a different experience to the obsession of being 13 years old and obsessed with Harry Potter. Whereas this, because Philip Hillman is, you know, his his original trilogy was obviously kind of more of a literary adult novel than Harry Potter was. It's just like a different subcategory. It's less of a jarring thing to revisit it as an adult because of the writing style. And with this, it's just like, it's just as brilliant. And yeah. there's none of the kind of thing where it's like, oh, here's some new information about the universe. It's just, he's just written a book and it's all about fucking Oxford academics again. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, th- it as you can imagine, this is immensely satisfying to me on that level. Uh, regular listeners of the podcast slash people who follow me on Twitter will know that I was at Oxford last year doing a master's and I studied abroad there as an undergraduate as well. And this is one of the most Oxford books I've ever read in my entire life. Like it is so unbelievably specific. All this geography, their descriptions of the oldest part of the Bodleian Library where I used to go and study which is like an just incredible room. Um, you can't bring water in because there are all these like unbelievably old books. It's where they shot the rare book section um, of Hogwarts in the Harry Potter films. And if you touch the old books, an alarm goes off. <laughs> They're literally right in front of you as you're studying. And if you like push your notebook too far, the alarm goes off, which I never did, thank God. But I, it's been known to happen. And just the detail with which he was writing about that place was immensely pleasurable to me as someone who lived there and just moved away. So it was kind of like an immediate nostalgia kick. But also I think even if you have it, you can sense how 
real it is, even in a book that obviously isn't meant to be like real in quotes. Yeah. Right. I wish I'd been as I wish that as I'd been reading it, I'd had little post-it notes and I could have put them into the book to remember quotes for this podcast. Because yes, his we quotes is just that. so evocative. We <laughs> failed. We failed in that regard. But hopefully everyone listening to this podcast has read the book. If not, I guess we're going to discuss spoilers. I mean, it's yeah. not really like, oh, spoiler content. There's not like a twist. Well, <laughs> um, I mean, we all know what happens to Lyra. Yeah, so... she survives. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of want to look up a gallery of photos of the Oxford locations now because I'm really visual person in the sense that I respond a lot to kind of visual beauty and what have you and I'm obviously into film but I can't imagine stuff visually so I just have no picture in my mind for any of this shit at all so I think it'd be helpful if I look up some galleries maybe and I'll find out what Oxford looks like <laughs> since it's like you know I've already had my kind of natural first time experience having reread these books about four million times when I was 12 so this is always wild to me when I talk to people who don't visualize when they read because I visualize everything obsessively I, I can't imagine not like seeing I it all in my head. Even, I can't do it. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I, I have we, we have many mutual friends I've talked to about this who like, it's just a thing in your brain that either is there or, or isn't. But uh, the descriptions in this are really stunning. And I think he's really good at doing description in a way. And again, we really should have uh, come up with some quotes to back this up. My uh, academic training is not serving me well here that are really evocative without being purple. So it, you really get the sense of what he's describing, but it doesn't feel indulgent. And his prose is fairly straightforward while still feeling really elegant and beautiful at times. And I found that with the other books too, as I was rereading them this summer. My opinion of them from childhood has not changed. I read them when I was a little kid, like obsessively. And then I reread them when I was 17, I think. And I had not I had not read them since, and my opinion had always been that the Golden Compass was my, was my favorite, and then I did not care for the Subtle Knife nearly as much, and then that the Amber Spyglass is also incredible, and the Subtle Knife is definitely the worst one, and I think the prose in that isn't nearly as good as in the other two, and it's interesting to read them sort of thinking about what editors might have done because. In the second one, and this is something that you see in the Harry Potter books too, you'll get the kind of, like, at the beginning of the book, he explains things from the first book as though you hadn't read it. And, like, you remember in Harry Potter when at the beginning of every book, she'd be like, Harry was a wizard, his best friend Ron, blah, blah, blah. And be like, everyone who's reading this knows who Ron is. Yeah, like, well, one has to wonder, because it's like, maybe the publisher is like, you have to put this in because people aren't going to remember. Forgetting that 11-year-olds obviously have reread this 9 million times because that's how bookish 11-year-olds work. <laughs> exactly. And when you read The Subtle Knife, it's very apparent that an editor was watched, looking over his shoulder, I mean, writing, you know, red pen on the manuscript and saying, you have to do this, you have to do that. And then you get to the Amber Spyglass and there's none of that in there mm -hmm. at all. And obviously at this point, he's such an unbelievably renowned and esteemed author that he could do whatever the fuck he wanted in this book and I don't have any way of knowing whether it's just my perspective as an adult reading this for the first time but those original books were always kind of carefully crafted so that a kid could read it and it wasn't inappropriate feels like a weird word to use but like it's accessible yeah. to a child but not really written like for children you know 
Um, well, with this one, I felt it felt different to me in a kind of subtle way. And I really don't know whether this is just because I am a different person now reading it for the first time. So again, like, and he said in interviews that he never wrote them as children's books, even though, again, they're clearly designed for children to be able to read them. Mm-hmm. This one felt to me like it was an adult writing about kids. Um, yeah, the way I was kind of thinking of it while I was reading it is when you go back to somewhere where you're a child and all the stuff is a different size because you're a different size. Yeah. Because I feel like even if I reread the original books now, even though I'd be thinking of the kids as kids, it would still sort of be my viewpoint. Whereas when I was reading this book, I was thinking, isn't it wonderful that he's managed this incredibly realistic, evocative voice of you know, an 11 year old kid and the stuff is described in his vocabulary, but in a kind of mature way. But I also felt really protective of him. And I was just like this, I really just hope this kid is okay. And it's terrible that the adults in his life can't protect him properly. And I was just getting like so defensive of this like (laughs) little boy, like, oh my God, I hope no one harms him. You know, I don't think I would have that same response rereading the other books or rereading Harry Potter. And I'd have to read another new children's books I haven't read as an adult to find out if I would still have that protective response or not. Yeah, that would be a good test because I reread. So I obviously, as I have said now several times, just reread the golden compass and it definitely was different. Like you get the sense of her as a kid in a way that when I was reading it at the same age, like obviously I wasn't thinking that, but she also is such a little spitfire that she never feels really in danger in the same way. or at least... And also she's explicitly written as a child who has grown up surrounded by adults. So she yes. has her little kid friends, but she finds it so easy and organic to speak to adults, like to interact with their world. Whereas the point of this one is that Malcolm, who is the son of innkeepers, he does interact with a lot of adults because he's, you know, handing them beer and pie or whatever. But he is just a kid. Right. And by the end of that trilogy, she has grown up like the whole point of it is that she's like had this sexual awakening i mean there's a lot going on in those books but like that it's the adam and eve story and so i always find and i remember thinking this as a teenager and then again as an adult like when i'm imagining the characters in my head because i am so visual that like when you read the first one like i imagine her as a kid and then the whole thing takes place over like three weeks or something it's a very compact period of time but then by the time you get to the end of the third one, like in my brain, she looks several years older because it seems like so much has happened. And also like it, she and Will have, have gotten up to some stuff that it seems like an 11 year old should not be doing. Whereas with this one. I mean, I think the trilogy takes place over maybe the course of like a year. Definitely. It's months, not. There's a lot of long distance travel. It's not a year. The first one takes up the most amount of time. I was okay. shocked by how little time. Because I remember when I when I originally read them as a kid, I assumed it was a really short of time because I always thought of her as 12 all the way through. But then everyone was just like, oh yeah, by the end of it, she's an adult. Because I think a lot of people thought that she'd literally had sex when she was 12. No, it's... Which is it, not how I ever read that. <laughs> I mean, I... Like, symbolically, she does. It depends on how you want to, like, interpret it. I remember at 17 having this hilarious conversation with a couple of my friends and the one of my friends had not understood at all what happens at the end of that book. Like, zero comprehension. 
<laughs> I just said to her, I was like, they have sex. Like, that's it. That's what's going on here. And she was like, no. And I just opened the book and handed it to her and had her read the passage. And she was like, oh, oh my God. I need to read because I don't think they, I never thought they actually full on had sex. I thought they like metaphorically do. I mean, they're 11. So I don't yeah. think you're actually supposed to like imagine that happening because, but that's this symbolically what is occurring. But this is a completely different thing. Like, you're just not supposed to think of him that way. And the sense of him being threatened by all of these adults around him who are engaged in this kind of dangerous activity, and he doesn't really know what's going on, it, it is really stressful as you're reading it. Because you don't want anything bad to happen to him. He's just, like, a very nice little boy. <laughs> like, oh, no. Like, and no. it's it's a much more I think also because it's a much more relatable childhood experience because he's not you know he's not heroic in the way that Lyra is because they've intentionally gone away from this hero's journey thing because you wouldn't want to repeat the past so a lot of it you know he's living at home with his parents when he needs to do something that's away from his parents he has to think of a plausible lie so there's this um, subplot where he kind of becomes an informant for this spy who's trying to fight against the kind of evil, oppressive Christian government. And he's like, oh, she's my tutor and we're sharing books sort of thing. But that's why it's kind of more stressful. Um, I mean, obviously the other books are also really stressful, but with this, when I was, especially the scenes set in the school were just so tense for me and I had to like stop reading because I was just like, oh God, this is like too much. This is too real for me because (laughs) they kind of set up this, Hitler youth basically at the school where kids are encouraged to inform on their teachers for not living up to Christian doctrine basically and he doesn't really have the political vocabulary to understand exactly what that means but he knows he doesn't want to do it and he's trying to kind of figure out in his mind how to get around this and he's essentially just like a really amiable kid who doesn't want to harm anyone and all these kids are just getting radicalized because they're you know, they're assholes, but they're also normal kids that just believe what adults tell them. And it's just really, it's really dark. And it, well, I was just like, this is too real. <laughs> well, what's so interesting about what he's doing, and this isn't nearly as explicitly ideological a book as The Amber Spyglass, where people are having theological discussions a lot. In yeah, it's much more terms, of a kind of right? boy's old adventure thing. Than- but what he's doing is showing how people are actually experiencing theocratic rule, right? Yeah. So in the Golden Compass, and or the His Dark Materials, rather, there are lots of conversations about theology and lots of conversations about the magisterium, which is the sort of governing body of the church, and interactions between these sort of high-up people, and Mrs. Coulter is the sort of agent of this body in the text and big existential threats coming from them. And then obviously there's just general existential questions around all of this stuff. But because Lyra is such an exceptional person in a literal sense, and because she's on this crazy quest and then in the second and third books, they're like jumping between worlds all over the place. You're not getting any sense of, normal life from an average person's point of view, which is fine. That's just what the books are. In this, most of the book is following this kid through his normal life. And then some of the other characters 
through their normal lives. And then things are happening that lead up to the kind of quest part in the last third, maybe. But because he does the day-to-day stuff, you see the normal people and how their lives are affected by the top stuff. Like, the to- it's a top-down yeah, situation, Yeah, and it, it really right? works with the kind of class dynamic between yeah. Lyra and Malcolm. And at one point, you know, one of my favorite lines in the book is when he he really bonds with the baby Lyra who's being housed with a group of nuns near his inn. And he just loves this baby so much and it's very, very sweet. And the baby is also extremely well characterized. But there's a point where he just kind of falls in love with this kid and it's kind of, he just says he's her servant forever. And obviously it's this really sweet sentiment, but it's also, there is this upstairs, downstairs dynamic to their stories because Lyra is... She's a bit of a spoiled brat at first because she's the only child who's been brought up by scholars and she knows that she is the daughter of someone really famous and distant, even though she's not familiar with him. And then she gets this holy quest and she always has this very entitled attitude, not in a bad way. It's just like her personality. Whereas Malcolm is explicitly working class and he's also just a person who just wants to help out and doesn't particularly need attention. And that fits in with the overall kind of story concept of this being what the common folk are experiencing while everyone else is having their like highfalutin religious war over over the top. (laughs) And also like all of the people who are these political activists and spies are just random people and academics without any money. And it's very Cold War. It's it's like, it's very much a Cold War story. Yes. And the main academic woman whose name is hannah that's yeah. her name hannah ralph yeah i kept imagining her in my head as one of the english professors at oxford and so it, that woman's name was popping into my head but uh, that is not what she is called in the novel <laughs> um but she so evoked an oxford academic to me which is why i was kind of imagining her as this woman like she was so perfectly characterized i uh, loved her she, she so she and apparently malcolm are in one of the short stories i think Lyra's Oxford because Hannah Ralph eventually becomes headmistress of the school that Lyra goes to. Apparently Malcolm is an academic at that point and I've completely forgotten this so I need to reread it. I never read that one and I really need to read it too but she I think is a wonderful character and I love that she is lending Malcolm these books and essentially conducting Oxford tutorials with him but he's like 11. It's like this is great but you get the sense of her obviously having really you know, the best of intentions and um, being a good person and really valuing this kid, but knowing that she has to exploit him. But even just like the next level above her in this organization that's called Oakley Street that's trying to learn about dust and Ruskov particles, which all gets uh, sort of explained in his dark materials, and they're against the church. But even they feel quite threatening because they are kind of powerful people who know things and you, the reader, and also the characters you like in the book don't. And I actually was half expecting reading the book there to be some twist where they turned out to be also bad, which didn't happen. Um, But I wouldn't have felt out of place for that to occur. I mean, Um, at one point there's a slight implication that one of them might suggest that Malcolm could be used to seduce a pedophile. Yes. Like they are awful people. They are rather they're like extremely ruthless, which is why it's such a Cold War story because Hannah is kind of the classic example of this quiet and friendly, but politically radical academic who feels morally obliged to be part of this 
world of spies, but she's on the lowest possible rung. And then Malcolm's on the rung below her. And the people who are her immediate handlers are already kind of professional grade spies and they're just living in a completely different world from her. Yes. The scene of the scene where the the guy whose name I don't remember makes the suggestion about Malcolm and she's obviously totally horrified was really intriguing to me because I mean awful obviously, but it never comes up again. And I wondered if that's something that will surface at some point. I mean, the next book is going to take place 20 years later, so I don't know how it would, but it felt like an odd little thread to dangle. And I assumed never that they again. included it to make it clear that these people are not morally, like, impressive. Yes. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it certainly has that effect. But then you're sort of like, I was left wondering, like, who is this person then? Like, what's going on? But that it could easily also just be just to make the point that you're suggesting. The other, obviously, huge benefit to the reader of a book like this and that he executes incredibly well that could have gone really badly is that he manages to expand the world that he's created in a way that doesn't feel hackneyed and stupid that jk rowling has not necessarily managed i would say the stuff i found the most compelling i think which makes sense because it is the main draw of this universe is all the stuff with the demons in the book which I was just like, Lyra's baby spy. demon is so oh, cute. Oh my god. So cute. <laughs> like everything about baby Lyra, I was dying. I can't think of a single book I've ever read with a more precisely characterized infant. I don't think I've like ever read a book old. with a... I mean, I've read books with babies in them, but it's always like the baby. Yes. Whereas because this baby has to be a person that you already love. I don't even know how you managed it though. Like it's the baby is just so cute. Astonishing. She is such a person. And then Pan is also like a little person and just the description of how like kind of helpless, but also full of personality the baby demon is. I was losing my mind. I was like, this is so cute. And it's in a book. Like, I, oh my God. Uh, and when Lord Asriel comes to visit her, he's like such a powerful character. Like I, I just love Asriel because I mean, for the obvious reasons, like the whole point is that he's this distant fa- father, but he's this immensely glamorous figure. And he always has this tremendous charisma to him with other characters. And if you're a kid, you're just like mesmerized by him. And he just shows up and takes complete charge of everything. And he's like, is she curious? Is she thoughtful? Is she happy? And then immediately like just fucks off and leaves her for the next 15 years. Because <laughs> he just doesn't care. He like, he cares, but he's not a dad. And he just doesn't, he just doesn't have it in him. He's just a no. shit. <laughs> shit and dad. I've always loved him. Great guy. <laughs> He's awful. He's one of my favorite characters. He is so good at writing him in a compelling way. Oh my god, you, before we go any further, like, yes. I, I need to talk about Coram Van Texel. Go who ahead. Is the best. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you really like Coram too? Or am I just alone in my love? I love him in The Golden Compass. In this, I, I liked seeing him again, but I wasn't. I didn't react the way you did. Okay, I was like, I was just so excited. (laughs) Delicate way of putting it. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, so he, in the original books, he's introduced as Fardacorum. He's kind of the the wise patriarch of the Egyptians who are Lyra's allies. And at that point, you know, he's meant to be really elderly, but 
he's this really compelling figure because he has this real romance to him. So the idea is that he's someone where you can tell that he used to be really, you know, beautiful, I guess, or like, you know, he has like a beautiful soul. And he also has this really romantic backstory where he had a tragic love affair with an immortal witch. Um, So, you know, they're immortal. So eventually they grew apart and he grew old and she's still young. And occasionally they like, you know, text each other or whatever. Um, (laughs) And he has this incredibly beautiful demon, which is just obviously a very important character point for me because I love all the cool demons. But he has this beautiful multicolored cat demon. And then in this one, obviously, he's younger. So I guess at this point, he is more likely in late middle age, like he's in his 50s or something. But he's a secret agent. <laughs> and I was just like, this is just perfect. Like he's he's just so kind of intelligent and glamorous. And while also kind of convincingly being someone who can be undercover in all of these just like quite shitty situations and also be ruthless while having a good heart, which is very much in the kind of Tinker Tailor soldier spy universe of the other spy characters. And while I was reading it, I kept thinking how much he is going to be miscast in the upcoming TV adaptation. (laughs) Uh, Because it has to be this kind of character where you can imagine him being a romantic lead without it being like a sexy, gross old man who's leering at people, right? So I That's feel like, this, to me anyway, this is like a female gaze kind of character because he's this like perfect wise old man who's like giving this young girl good advice. And he's also a historical romantic lead. And he's also like a cool spy. <laughs> <laughs> So what I'm saying is I have a crush on Farda Corum is what I'm saying. (laughs) But I feel like this is just going to be cast as like fucking Derek Jacobi or something in the TV series. And I'm just going to be like, what a yawn. (laughs) I always see when I was a little kid, I thought the Egyptians were black because to my American mind, like the way they're they're described described as like dark skinned. Yeah. And like the, the, their kind of um, traditions are seem coded more whereas everyone in britain is like they're travelers yeah and so in my head i have a very specific picture of him because i keep saying like i visualize everything i have a very (laughs) specific picture of him as a black guy and so any any person they cast will not satisfy me because it's going to be wrong (laughs) um i of course uh, know what the deal is now as an adult but in my head i still have held on to that specific image since the age of around 10 yeah, I did like his his reappearance. Mrs. Coulter also gets a couple. Yeah, and couple she's good so scenes. young at this point. She's like, and she's like our age. Yeah, it's wild. Which is wild. Yeah, when Mrs. Coulter was our age, she was already a evil supervillain for the Catholic Church and had had a baby and an affair. <laughs> <laughs> what have we, we done in our lives? We just have a podcast. We are slacking. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to say about the demons was that. He does a ton of really fascinating stuff with the villain Bonville's uh, demon, who is a hyena who winds up with three legs because Fartacorum sort of uh, injures one of them and then she like gnaws it off, which is really unpleasant. It's a really disturbing, disturbing demon. Yeah. Extremely fucked up. Well, this is what I was thinking about when I was reading it in terms of like who this book is for. Right. And I think it is so masterfully done to be accessible to anyone who wants to read it because a kid could absolutely read this and enjoy it. But there's a lot of really dark stuff Mm -hmm. in it that 
is explicitly dark, but um, explicit isn't quite the right word because obviously it's not explicit, but like it's clearly dark, but in a way that a kid maybe wouldn't fully grasp. So this guy Bonville is like beating his own demon, which the kids are incredibly disturbed by, understandably, in the book. And was incredibly disturbing to me reading it. Like I just yeah. found that whole concept like it's it obviously never occurred to me. Like why would you think of that? And then you find out that he's also a sexual predator and that this is kind of his backstory. And he preys on the young female character in the book who's like 15 or something. Her name is Alice. And uh, it's handled in a way that if you're an adult reading it, you know exactly what's happening. And it is like he's referenced as having been in jail for like a sex crime. So it's not like it's not in there. But as a kid, if you were reading it, you just wouldn't mm-hmm. know what was going on. Um, and also there's this whole situation where Malcolm doesn't fully understand why he's creepy, but he can tell that the adults effectively have the whisper network where they're just like, yeah, this guy's, you can't be near him. Not for Malcolm because this guy preys on girls, but it's like very much kind of clear as an adult where that conversation's coming from. Yeah. And I just thought it was such a, an effective way to make this character who is trying to steal Lyra basically and in the last third of the book this massive flood comes and they set out on Malcolm's canoe which is called the Bill Sauvage which is the title of the book uh, to take her to Lord Asriel in London and he's chasing after them and I found him to be such an effective villain because there is something really uncanny about him and also really sociopathic and just the idea that you would have a technically children's book where the bad guy is a rapist is wild. Like, that's really so kind of out something, there. Something one of our listeners brought up. I kind of asked for questions on Twitter, but I forgot to ask again, so we only got a couple. Um, but one of the things someone brought up was they basically didn't like that they had this kind of dynamic with a sexual predator and like a girl being like the target in this book. And I also read the review on tour.com was very critical of the book. And I can basically kind of said that it was sexist. They said that they didn't think much of the female characterization, which I don't agree with at all, that it was, they thought it was essentially like simplifying and clumsy to have a sexual predator as the villain instead of something more interesting. I, I kind of, I see where people are coming from with the sexual predator aspect, even though that wasn't something that bothered me. I think it's more like your mileage may vary. And also kind of the current news cycle is really fucking with everyone's heads a lot. So like, by all means, if you hate this, go with God. I completely understand. (laughs) Um, But with like the kind of female characterization, I think the key criticism was that the female lead, Alice, they were like, she's really one dimensional. And she also basically just does women's work. And I was really fine with that and didn't think it was a problem at all. Like the idea is that she and, and Malcolm both work in the inn and he's this really practical minded engineer kid who knows how to, you know, screw stuff in to boats and that kind of thing. And she has worked basically as the maid at the end so she can take care of cooking and also has sisters so she looks after a baby. But even though that's a really traditional gender dynamic, I'm like, within this setting, that's fine. And also, if this was his first book, maybe I'd be a bit like, oh no. But because we've already had these three books which have this incredible diversity of female characters with interesting roles. And even this one, you know, the kind of frumpy middle-aged academic spy is not exactly like a stereotypical. <laughs> right. you know? And I was just like, I really liked Alice. Like she's, 
she's very unpleasant and I feel like you get this really great view of how Malcolm doesn't understand her at all for basically the entire book and as you know an adult and probably partly as a woman I was just like well I completely understand her from day one you know right she's like a miserable 15 year old who isn't getting much attention yeah and you get the sense that maybe something's going on at home that's never yeah. quite articulated. And she's, like there's something unpleasant's happened in her background, like yeah. but not like super traumatizing, but something nasty. And I kept expecting them to address it, and it's just all kept in the subtext in a really interesting way. Well, she's also related to Roger, but that's Is not. She? Oh my god! Yeah, they have the same surname. Oh wow! So she's like Roger's mm-hmm. big sister. Yeah. Oh my god! Roger's Lyra's best friend from the first book. Yes. And uh, you, yes, there's this just sense that something is not right. But also she's just a sullen teenager who isn't thrilled about what's going on. And she's the one who's taking care of the baby in a practical sense when they're on this journey at the end because Malcolm doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And that's presented as a great virtue. Like the fact that she knows how to take care of her baby is hugely important because if she didn't, then they'd be screwed. And that is characterized as, like, really valuable yeah. work, right? And I really didn't um, feel like it was one of these situations, like the Game of Thrones thing, where it's like, well, in this fictional historical period, we had all these gender roles. Because even though there is an inherent sexism to the world of historic materials, like mirroring our own world, that's really not the way these characters are portrayed. It's just skill sets. Yeah, well, I think he walks a fine line in an effective way in all of them where they are clearly, the the society is clearly regressive in certain ways and there's a Victorian quality to all of them that people have commented on before. in In the Golden Compass, Lyra makes some comment at some point, like she's getting clothes from somewhere at she has to wear a skirt. She like refuses to wear trousers. Right. She's like, why on earth? Like she just can't fathom that she wouldn't like it's just inconceivable to her. But she's like doing like interdimensional travel. Right. <laughs> oh, it's the beginning of the subtle life, actually, because they're stealing clothes yeah. in when they go into the next world and Will's like, oh, take some, you know, trousers or whatever, because he's from our world. And she's like, excuse me. <laughs> like, um, and the Oxford colleges are all still male, except for the few that are the few female colleges. And Lyra has a certain snobbery about female scholars yeah. in the Golden Compass. Like she can't believe that they're all the women. And it's really um, explicitly just shown as like internalized sexism, like in a really obvious yeah. way that I remember even picking up on when I was like eleven. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not subtle, but that obviously is all coming from again the top down. And is made complex by the fact that Mrs. Coulter is the agent of power of that institution and clearly knows what she's doing and presents herself as this unbelievably charming, beautiful, very feminine person. I mean, she it's is a classic the, like, weaponized femininity. Yeah. Villain. And then is just fucking with all these people's lives. I think it's really smart about all of that and I, I don't like I don't think it's an uncritical you know presentation of these things 
It didn't. It literally didn't even occur to me reading the book to find. It didn't occur to me either. Um, I get. But I know why... that this is something like a certain, like a certain number, like a significant amount of readers have really disliked about this book. That's basically the only thing I've seen people discussing about this book on social media. Although I don't really follow any book people, but it, it didn't s- even occur to me while reading it. I haven't seen any discussion of the book, but I I don't follow people who, except um, maybe one or two of our friends. Yeah. But I haven't, I don't follow people who would be talking about it necessarily. Um, I certainly understand if, regarding the um, sexual violence, given the current climate, if you wouldn't want to be reading something like that right now. I, for instance, had been sort of, I got maybe halfway through the HBO show The Deuce, which I think is incredible television. I'm definitely going to finish it at some point. I loved it. And that I think it was literally halfway through the season, the first uh, Weinstein story broke. And I was like, well, I can't watch this right now. Cause it's about, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not even bothering with Handmaid's Tale in Times Square, right? Like you just, there's yeah. certain things you don't want to consume, but I thought that it was all doing something in this book. And I didn't think it was gratuitous at all. Like, obviously he's not describing any of these things in detail. It's a book that's marketed for like 12 year olds. And, I felt that she had a lot of agency in the book and a really strong personality. So it wasn't yeah. like she was being used as an object who was a victim of this guy. Not and Malcolm much. is really terrified of him too. So it's not like he's only sort of frightening to women. Like Malcolm is really, really scared of him. I found that stuff reading the most kind of scary and disturbing, that whole element in a way that really affected me as a reader. So I appreciated that it was in there. I mean, the demon thing, I think, I'm sure some people will kind of start by reading the Book of Dust because there's kids now who will maybe see this as the first one. Yeah. But I think the the hyena thing is maybe the only aspect of the book that's really going to work much better if you've read the others. Because when you have the idea of the demons really instilled into your brain, Mm -hmm. it's so much more horrifying than just being like, oh, this guy's got this like weird hyena that pisses all the time. Like it's just like, <laughs> yeah, gross. And it's like, oh, this is like viscerally disturbing to me and I'm traumatized. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. There was it's something like, of, so symbolic like, of this never explained internal struggle that he has. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's really well put that there is some that it's not explained what his deal is. And obviously you can just say, okay, well, he's a predator, whatever. It's not like Yeah. He but it's deserves... like that isn't even his motive is the interesting thing, right? Because he's, right. he's he's almost using his ability to seduce teenage girls as a skill set, as a spy, because his motivation is that he was a scientist who was studying the Rusikov particles. And then, you know, he lost his career because he was a pervert. And then he's become a spy in order to try and regain his career. And he thinks that by stealing Lyra and giving her to the authorities, then he can regain some power for himself and get his career back. And he's carrying around all these like folders of technical Rusikov particle papers and stuff and then when he's creeping on the girl it's because he needs information from her and he's using the skills he has as some guy who's been like seducing teenage girls before yes and he does the same thing with one of the nuns at the nunnery and it's really kind of calculated so there's just like so many levels of how disturbing it is and you never know exactly why his hyena is so disturbing because the hyena works as a tool to instill fear into people and is really alarming to everyone, especially the kids. But at the same time, the hyena, they both hate each other because it's trying to hamper him as well. And like, he clearly hates himself. And the hyena will do things like piss in strange places. 
and then he beats it and there are these sort of strange scenes and you obviously get very clearly that he hates himself and has some kind of like sociopathic issue and that he's predatory. But with the scenes with the demon, it's almost like, um, I have seen one thing by David Lynch ever, and that is Mulholland Drive, and I didn't particularly like it. But it reminds me of the kind of Lynchian thing, and other directors do this too, but where there's just like an image that's really disturbing, and you don't know why it's disturbing. Yeah. But it he'll, he'll just show something, and it's like the brilliance of cinema is that cinema can do things like this, where they'll just, there's just the experience of seeing the image, there's some sort of id level thing in your brain reaction you're like i don't like that at all it's like in mulholland drive have you seen that um no it's one of the few david lynch things i haven't seen okay because someone described it to me in college and her description was so disturbing i couldn't watch the film there's like a guy (laughs) who comes out from behind something i don't even remember but it's like the image that everyone talks about from that film and it's just just freaks you out like there's just it's and it's impossible to articulate what your brain is exactly doing in that moment yeah. and i mean it's, it's uncanniness yeah but it, it is it, absolutely but there's also something else going on that is hard to i mean i'm sure psychoanalysts have heard about this but i think he mobilizes that really well in this in a way that obviously isn't exactly visual because you're reading it but has that same level of not exactly explained wrongness but it is wrong and then when you're reading it, you just feel raw, like gross and bad. And for a villain character, that's so effective because you just think, get these children away from him. Like, God, this is not good. And for him to be trying to steal a baby, <laughs> like, that's just the worst combination. <laughs> like, no. It's terrible. There's just like two different levels because you're like really protective of Malcolm. But then he's really protective of the baby. And then you're like, if Malcolm's die, like, what happened? What happens to the baby? Oh my god. <laughs> it's like I have like fucking no maternal instincts whatsoever. So I'm just saying they're like, I don't know how to handle these fictional children. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, it was very intense. They when they're all like going on their little boat quest to London and things keep getting worse and worse gets increasingly stressful there's all this sort of all these allusions to the fairy queen that i could not parse because i read a bunch of the fairy queen in college and do not remember it at all i was really annoyed with myself when i got to the end and there was this quote from the fairy queen because obviously i could tell that the references in it were from things that have later been referenced in a lot of british kind of children's fantasy and so on of which I am very familiar. Um, but like, I've not read The Fairy Queen and it's on my reading list of Thomas Hamilton from Black Sails books. <laughs> I've not reached it yet. That was like the next thing. And I've been told just not to read it all because it's fucking boring. But um, parts well, I will read. My my What I can tell you about The Fairy Queen, I read, I can't remember if they have you read two or three books of it in college. I feel like I read two. I think there are 12 books total. Edmund Spencer lived in Ireland for most of his life. He had served under Walter Raleigh and they had murdered, just slaughtered many, many, many Irishmen in one of the various conflicts. And he then was sent off by the Queen to live in Ireland. And I can't remember if it was partially because they had been, like, this is partially a punishment for having been so brutal that she was like, well, I don't need you around here anymore. Did they murder him in return? No. Bummer. But okay. he had to live in Ireland. And he was 
completely terrified of Irish people. Uh, this is really on topic for this podcast, but I'm just going to keep telling you the story anyway. He was terrified of them. And he lived in this, like, kind of fucking castle somewhere. I have no idea. He, during this period, wrote this insane screed about, like, the Irish people. It's, like, the most racist thing you'll ever read. It's astonishing. It, it, it's like reading a madman. I mean, he, he basically went nuts. Like, it's just, I read this sort of course in college that is, no one ever reads this thing, but I read it. And he just thought they were going to creep out of the woods and, like, murder him in his sleep, which is also this trope in sort of the Anglo-Irish stuff for many centuries, right? Of, like, the Irishman creeping in the woods and setting houses on fire. While he was living out there for decades, he spent his time writing The Fairy Queen, which is fucking weird on many levels. <laughs> like, he just, like, was writing this crazy book, most of which is incredibly boring and unreadable, and it's written in this bizarre meter that many people find very difficult to read. I actually didn't have trouble with it in college, which is interesting because poetry isn't really my thing. But Should I um, listen to it on audiobook instead? Possibly. Um, I haven't, but it might be easier. The f- people who are at all familiar with this, or even if you aren't, might know it's spelled F-A-E-R-I-E and then queen with an E on the end, right? That spelling was never used. He invented all of this like weird archaic stuff. And it's all about like the myths of England and King Arthur. And he was so English and he was off in Ireland, like writing this thing, like just losing his fucking mind. <laughs> so that's the backstory. This is nothing to do with anything, but I thought you might enjoy that little story before you get out to read it. <laughs> um, but it is this like incredibly archetypal English thing. Like it's about fucking King Arthur, and um, so it's interesting that his is what he chose to to use as his big reference for this Paradise Lost. Obviously, is the big reference for his dark materials, um, and it would be interesting to know more about that I wish that someone would write a think piece so that I wouldn't have to actually do the reading. Well, I'm very myself. excited to reread the trilogy now. I have read Paradise Lost as part of my Black Sails Thomas Hamilton reading. <laughs> <laughs> I also read part of that in college and did not continue because I, I didn't care. I loved it. I skipped the middle parts a little bit. Yes. Because everyone skips the middle parts. Who cares? It's fine. Yeah. I read the, the Adam and Eve stuff and Satan's Fall because that's all that matters. Anyway, yeah, there's lots of literary stuff going on. It's very fun. Uh, and I guess we should say a little bit about the ending before we, we close, which is that it's very beautiful and sad, and I have a lot of emotions. So, um, they succeed, obviously, in, in getting Lyra to her dad, and they bring her back to Oxford. Yeah, Azrael shows up in a fucking speedboat. Yeah, great. Like, the last period of it is so is so kind of exhausting and I just kept thinking how good Philip Pullman is at writing physical exhaustion which is something that is a really really defining aspect of the final book The Amherst Spyglass because there's this they're really tired because they've been on this quest for ages without any support and then there's this point where they have to go to the world of the dead and there's just like it's so kind of dark and depressing and they they feel really tired and I think these kind of like basic physical emotions and reactions are something that's really essential to writing a children's novel and I think quite a lot of people like now it's easy to look back at the Narnia books and also things like the famous five and see how much of it just ties in to the fact that there's loads of descriptions of food because they're being written by people who just got off rationing so yeah if you're reading like Narnia you're just I'm so excited about all these feasts and like Harry Potter's the same right 
He's like, obviously we've not just got off rationing, but like sometimes a kid just wants to read about like a bunch of cake. (laughs) And at the same time, like, you know what it's like. It's like, oh, you've been like on a hike or you've been playing sports all day and you're really physically tired. And it's a kind of almost a different kind of tiredness from doing physical labor all day. But most of us don't do a lot of physical labor. So like, it's, you know, it's just something that like is a lot, is easy to understand as a child. And also reading this, you can tell how it like fits into that kind of canon of, of yeah. like childish reactions to stuff. They've been rowing all the time and it's this kind of thing that for him used to be an adventure. Like you take a picnic and then go rowing on the river and it's turned into this horrible quest that he doesn't want to be doing and he's in danger. And then finally the person who rescues him is this idolized parental figure with a powerboat. And <laughs> he's just like a dick. <laughs> but it's fine. He doesn't need to know that. Um, but the thing that was like the last moment of the book it was so moving is that he's been having these sort of little meetings with um, this professor who's been talking to him about the alethiometer and all of this stuff. He's been learning about the symbols and then he actually be- winds up in possession of an alethiometer through Bonville, the bad guy. And then as there's giving Lyra to uh, the master of Jordan College, which is where she grows up, and the reason they're doing that is to save her from the church people for complicated reasons. Uh, he just gives it to her as a present, and I was like, "Oh, this is how you get it!" <laughs> oh no, this sweet boy, like you could have kept it for yourself, but instead you just all. And also, and I was just like, I was so emotional. upset because he's just not a figure in her childhood at all. Nope. They have to sort of stay away for safety reasons, and so he just goes off and I guess becomes a scholar, which you can sort of tell is the yeah. the route that he's going to go on. But um, I just yeah, I just really want to read about the meeting again. I hope he'd better fucking show up in the second book. I'm certain. I mean, why on earth would you spend an entire novel just on to this torture me to actually torture <laughs> me, which is what Philip Pullman has been doing since I was like an infant? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I can't wait for the next one now. Like, I need it immediately. Ah. He still has to write the last one, though, so I feel like you should space these out. Really stressful. Does Does the next one come out next year at the same time, or have I imagined that? No, you made that up. Okay, cool. So it's just coming out at, like, a non-specified time that might be, like, after the end of the world. <laughs> Correct. I'm sure... Well, it's done, but I'm sure they don't yeah. want to release it too soon because he hasn't written the last one, so if they'd release yeah. it immediately then it could be... There's too much of a gap. Yeah. Um, I Don't want to end up probably... with a George R. R. Martin situation. Correct. Um, probably two or three years, I would imagine. Mm. Probably two. Um, but we'll see. the oldest shit. I, I fucking know. <laughs> oh my god. I was thinking, I read The Golden Compass for the first time in 2000. Like, oh yeah. No. We were 10. Yep. And I remember, I was trying to, I looked up the publication dates, I was trying to work out, like, when exactly this occurred, because I remember my fourth grade teacher telling me, like, oh, you should read this book, I think you'd like it, and then, of course, it became my favorite thing in the world, and I remember having to wait for The Amber Spyglass to come out, and it was torturous, because the most difficult thing I'd ever had to endure in my life, right, and I already had to wait for the Harry Potter books, I was used to this, but I was dying to read this, because the end of The Subtle Knife is a horrible cliffhanger, and I you know, inhaled those first two books. And I looked it up and I was like, 
the Airbrake Spyglass came out like two months into the school year of that year. Like, what? Like, do I have? Am I me- remembering who recommended it to me wrong, or were those two two long months just like the most miserable time of like? Ah! Oh my god, childhood is just very dramatic. Everything happens so much. Oh man, yeah. So, oh. It was a good experience reading this. I'm very happy that he wrote it. It was I look wonderful. Forward, forward to the next ones. Um, I don't think I have anything else to say about this. We covered it all? Forgot we did. Anything? All right. Excellent. Next week, would you like to say what we are planning? Yeah. Next week, we, we have a little calendar. Um, and next week, what we had plugged in was Justice League. Um, but Morgan, and I completely support her in her endeavors, is not going to watch Justice League. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to watch it and that's going to be expense to my workplace. You know, that's where <laughs> we are at right now. We considered not doing an episode at all, but I think what we're going to do is a kind of a shorter kind of episode. And I am going to relate to Morgan my experience. <laughs> so look forward to that. But the week after that, Thanksgiving weekend for you Americans, that will be Call Me By Your Name. Yes. One of the biggest movies of the year, unlike Justice League. We will be sort of swinging the pendulum from very bad to very good. I mean, in fairness, Justice League could be good. I have not seen it yet. I will pass judgment. What if I say it's amazing and then you have to see it? This is very true. Anything is possible in this world. We have no way of knowing. However, I strongly suspect that... We will be on opposite ends of the spectrum on those those two weekends. So look forward to that. Thank you, as ever, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.